The content presented in this podcast is solely for educational purposes and should not be used as medical advice to diagnose, manage, or treat any health conditions. If you or someone you know has a condition or disease discussed in this podcast, we would encourage you to create and implement a care plan specific to your needs under the supervision of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in the field of fetal medicine and should not be interpreted as the standard of care. Hey, Woommates. Welcome back to the News Womb. This is Aaron Moise. And this is Ken Moise. And we're recording during the day. Oh, yeah. I see light outside. It's daylight. So yeah, we're not going to say tonight. We're going to say today. That's right. On this episode of The News Womb, we're still in Twins R Us. I think we're kind of wrapping it up, aren't we? We are wrapping up. We have a couple more. We think this is going to be a two-pata. think so. A two-pata. So this is the highly anticipated what they did not teach you in laser school. Right. All of the tips and tricks and trade secrets. Yeah, this is things we run into. I guess I've been doing lasers for about 15 years now at three different institutions, four different institutions. And every now and then, as many as you've done, you get thrown a curveball and having some tools in your back pocket to think about, gee, what would I do if this happens, I think would be useful. But these are some things we've learned over time. I think you're closer to 20 years than 15. Okay, well, that's a long time. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about a lot of intraoperative tips in the OR, but I think before we get into that, let's talk about pre-op evaluation tips and techniques. Yeah, so there was a Delphi process. That's a process where you ask experts to rate different steps of a procedure as to what's the most important. And in the Delphi process that was undertaken for laser, what came out across the board was you need to know where to put the cannula. And so when you're evaluating patients initially, in our clinic area, we always look very carefully at the cord insertions to figure out, okay, we want to be about halfway between those two. And of course, you don't want to be close to the donor sac. We'll talk about that a little bit later with septostomy. You want to make sure you're not on the donor side, so you don't go into the donor sac. You want to stay in the recipient sac. And a nice trick that actually as a fellow pointed it out is that the lie of the donor, so following the spine to see what the lie is, is always typically parallel to the membrane that we'll use as a, a sign for where the anastomotic region is. So that inner twin membrane, as it's folded over, seems to fold over parallel to the lie of the donor. So figure out your lie of your donor, figure out where your cord insertions are, and you can take a pretty good guess as to where you need to put the cannula in to see everything right. Now, sometimes a donor is in uh, what I think Ruben Quintero described as a cocoon presentation. That's where it's kind of hanging like a hammock typically from the ceiling, and it's kind of swinging around there. So it got caught at the end of the sack, and there's a little neck where the cord goes up to the placenta. So that's not going to work. The lie rule won't work when you have a cocoon presentation. But if the donor's stuck on the sidewall somewhere, figure out where the spine is, figure out the lie, and that's going to tell you the parallel configuration of the inner twin membrane. When you go, now one tip, because we've been burned once, we always like to look for kidneys and particular renal blood flow in the donor, right? Because the donor has no bladder in stage two and higher. So do you know if you have working kidneys? And remember a long time ago, early in our experience, did a nice laser on a twin twin. We had a stuck donor and kind of borderline poly in the recipient. And so we did a nice laser, went well, and the donor never recovered. There was never a bladder. There was never a 
fluid being produced. And lo and behold, we started looking and we couldn't find kidneys. So we like to document renal blood flow to kidneys in the donor as a pre-op evaluation because, again, we are not able to see a bladder, so we don't know if there's going to be kidneys. So don't get caught with renal agenesis in the donor. Remember, we've talked earlier that discordance for anomalies is not uncommon, even in monochorionic twins. So look for those kidneys in that donor. I think back to talking about the cord inserts, that's also, as part of your pre-op evaluation, sometimes determined whether or not a patient is a candidate or not. Because if your cord inserts are really close together... Yeah, good point. Yeah. So if your cords are less than two centimeters apart, most people won't offer laser because you just, when you get in there, you can't figure out where, and this is the problem with monoamionic twins, right? We talked about that earlier. The vessels are so close together and are so big, it's very difficult to sort things out. And a lot of times we'll either offer observation or selective reduction because you just can't sort it out when the cords are less than two centimeters apart. So you want to look for that too. And many times the cord insertions for the donor are, you know, marginal or velamentous and they're sitting behind the donor. So it can be difficult to decide exactly where the cord is for the donor. But classically, you can sort of figure it out with today's color flow Doppler where it inserts into the placenta. And believe me, as we've said time and time again, these twins don't read the book. I've seen velamentous insertions on the recipient side. And since you're going to go into the sac on that side, I think you have to be very careful you don't hit those velamentous vessels in the membrane as you enter on the recipient side. So map out those vessels, particularly if you have a velamentous insertion for the recipient. Okay, so let's talk about the actual anesthesia we use for these procedures. We've talked in some of our previous episodes about what we use, but there's obviously a little bit of alteration. Can you talk about what the most common technique is and maybe some tips and tricks if those are not good options? So I think there are a lot of centers that use spinal anesthesia or epidural anesthesia. We've really not ever used that. I think we used it once or twice when we had to do a cut down on the subcutaneous tissue. We'll talk about that in a minute. And a very obese patient. Our preference is to use local at the injection site and then IV sedation. We like remifentanil. It's a very short-acting narcotic. The beauty of it is it's such a small molecule. It crosses the placenta fairly rapidly. We start the remi infusion when the patient gets into the room. Once the anesthesiologist has all of his EKG leads on and all, and it will cross the placenta. And particularly when you're dealing with a poster placenta and your fetus is moving around a lot, it'll really slow down that fetal movement. So we like remifentanil for that reason. You can titrate it to the mother's breathing. And at the same time, it will cross the placenta rapidly and decrease fetal movement. So our anesthesia du jour is local. We like bupivacaine. We use 0.25%. I think it's, we're running short on that. So we'll take 0.5% and dilute it out with saline. But we'll, we'll put about 20 cc's of pipivacaine in the site. I think you have to- Without epi. Without epi, without absolutely, epi. without epi. And I think you have to wait for it to work, right? People put it in and go. And I'm like, well, it doesn't work that fast. So we have a 30-second rule. So once we've injected it pretty well where we want to be, make a wheel and inject deeper. Be careful you don't get into a venous sinus and you're right above the uterine wall. We'll wait 30 seconds and give it time to work. And then the patient usually is pretty numb. And the beauty of bupivacaine, and most people don't realize, it takes away your pressure receptors as well as pain receptors. And it'll last for hours after the procedure. So patients will rarely complain of incisional pain when you put bupivacaine at 0.25% in your incision. We don't like general anesthesia. There's some pretty good data out of the Toronto group that you get more bleeding from the puncture site. It makes sense. These inhaled gases relax the uterus. We learned that from doing open spina bifida. So we really prefer not to use general anesthesia. We have used it on a few occasions where despite remifentanil and local anesthesia, the patient starts sobbing or coughing or something, and we just can't 
perform the laser safely. And in that situation, we would put the patient to sleep. And finally, we'll talk here in a minute, but a laparoscopic approach has been used for anterior placentas. And because you're doing a laparoscopy at the same time as fetoscopy, you have to put the patient to sleep in that situation. And the laparoscopic approach is just really visualizing the cannula insertion. Right. So that procedure has been reported. I think we report a series out of Houston when I was there. And basically, it allows you to put the fetoscopic cannula through the back of the uterus behind the broad ligament. It's hard to do that when you are almost impossible to do that with an anterior approach. But this would be if you have a central placenta, maybe a set of triplets, and you had a big anterior placenta. You just can't find a window. You don't want to go through the placenta. You can put the patient to sleep, get your surgeons to help you. Many times use pediatric surgeons to help us. They do sort of an open laparoscopic approach because you got to be careful where you put the cannula in for the laparoscopy above the fundus of the uterus. And then you put the CO2 in and then they put a second puncture in and push the uterus over with an instrument. And then we're able to watch our cannula go in way off to the right or left side, place where you wouldn't want to be. We go over the top of the descending colon or ascending colon, put the needle over the top. And then we watch as it goes into the posterior aspect behind the broad ligament. And what's so nice is you're then looking up at the placenta. You're looking straight up in the air. The trick is that once you put the needle in for the Selinger technique and you're going to put the cannula in, the cooked cannula, you want to let the gas out. So the uterus comes up against the abdominal wall again. And you can tell your surgeon they can take out their laparoscopic instruments too. And now now you have a shorter distance to be able to put your scope in and look up at the anterior placenta. And it's like looking at a posterior placenta, but just from the backside. And we've used that less and less than in the past, but I think it's a useful tool to keep in your back pocket when you have a central anterior placenta and just no place to go. Now you need a, a fairly long scope. Unfortunately, some of the scopes we have are too short to do this. The wolf scope is the best. It's zero degrees, but it's long. And you can put it through the cannula. It takes a 12 French cook cannula to go through, but you can put it behind the broad ligament and push it through and you can look all the way up at the interpolacent and reach it. Okay. And what about drugs that we use or don't use or make sure we give to mom? Let's talk yeah, about Yeah. So those. I think we see a lot more moms, particularly with twins being put on aspirin therapy. I'm sort of a fan of stopping the aspirin at least for a few days so we don't get into some bleeding complications. And we'll talk in a minute about some of the things you could do if you get bleeding into the amniotic cavity during the procedure, but I prefer not to have aspirin on board. So at least tell them to stop it at the time of referral. And then we always put them back on it post-op to prevent preeclampsia. Antibiotics, pretty much all of our moms get prophylactic antibiotics. I think a lot of centers do that. We use a cephalosporin and give it to them pre-op on call to the OR. If patients are allergic to uh, cephalosporin and penicillin, we use clindamycin. And then we put oxacillin in the amniotic fluid, put a gram per liter. And the event that we have to instill fluid into the amniotic cavity, we like to have some antibiotics in it. We prefer oxacillin. Some people use nafcillin. That will cover skin flora as you infuse fluid. So we have that in the back burner. For pre-op tocolytics, we like nifedipine. I think most centers are using nifedipine now instead of endocin because we worry about renal blood flow in the smaller twin being exposed to endocin. We know endocin affects renal blood flow, so we like nifedipine. And we'll keep them on that for a few doses afterwards, but they'll get a pre-op dose. So now we're ready to place the cannula, but before we put the cannula in, let's talk a little bit about what needle you use, because typically we do a little stab incision with an 11 blade, and then you use a particular needle. Let's talk about that first. 
Right. So again, lessons learned over time, right? So there's two 18-gauge needles. There's the diamond point needle, echo tip needle, and then there's the regular 18-gauge quinky tip, kind of like long spinal needle. And what you'll learn if you haven't already, we figured that out, is that the J-wire that comes with the cook cannula will not, will not go down a regular 18-gauge quinky tip needle, but it will go down the diamond point needle. So always look for that diamond point needle. And sometimes it's useful just to take that J-wire in the cook packet and just run it down there make sure you got the right needle but if you use the diamond point echo tip needle it's also made by cook medical it's made it's by cook the also yeah, yeah. then it's going to take the j wire that comes with the cook cannulas either the 10 french or the 18 french the j wires are the 10 same french or 12 french 10, 10 and 12 sorry 10 and 12 french the j wires are the same size but they'll go down that particular needle but they won't go down a typical quinky tip spinal needle so we always look at it. remember the diamond point won't go to the skin very well so we always have to make a little stab incision it goes through fascia fine goes through uterus fine but won't go through skin very well so we have to make a little stab incision before we put that needle in and so now we're ready to place the cannula. Any tips on placing the cannula? Which after talking with Dr. Ville, and I think Ramesh mentioned this as well, but this is the most important step in a successful laser. Right. Placing this and try to enter the membrane at 90 degrees. You don't want to enter tangentially. So you try to go in at 90 degrees to the membrane. One thing we have learned, most people use a Selinger technique. The idea there is you enter first with an 18-gauge needle, put the J-wire in, and then put the Cook cannula, which is really an intravenous cannula for central line. So we've pirated that to use it to enter the uterus. Most people are using the Cook cannula. There is a Terumo series also that can be used. It's a little bit shorter cannula than the Cook, but we use it the same way. So when we use a Selinger technique, it's needle first, J-wire second needle out cannula over or the dilator of the cannula over the j-wire and then you have to sort of push it in with steady pressure and so we like to use that now when you have a really thick patient you know she's got a lot of subcutaneous tissue you will bend that cook cannula trying to get it in over the j-wire and so in that situation we use i call it the spike what do you call it i call it the harpoon the harpoon it looks yeah very violent it looks pretty violent. It's a big metal nail that Cook makes. It's a railroad tie. It does look like a railroad tie. <laughs> and they make a different one for the 10 French and the 12 French Cook cannulas. Cook makes these. And we just put that in. It barely comes out the end of the plastic cannula, but we just kind of ram that thing in and it won't bend, I promise when you put that in. And so we do use that on the heavier patient. I can't give you an exact measurement of the amount of subcutaneous tissue where we don't use Selinger, but you have to kind of use clinical judgment there. And and with that being said too, when you use the spike, you don't end up needing the needle, the guide wire. You really right. just do the stab incision and then straight spike in. the yeah. cannula straight in. Yeah, a tip there too, that, that spike needs to be sharpened every now and then. I think the Europeans throw them away and buy a new one after five uses or something, but we try to keep up with the number of uses and I would say after five uses or so, it should be sharpened or you buy a new one because it's going to lose its sharpness as it goes through the fascia and you use it multiple times. So keep that in mind if you use that spike or harpoon to put these cannulas in. There's been one or two cases in the past where the patient was so obese and that even with the spike cannula, things just aren't long enough. The cook cannula wasn't long enough to get enough of it into the uterus. And so in that situation, sometimes you have to maybe use a spinal or maybe general, and you're going to make an incision in the subcutaneous tissue and actually open up in a surgical incision. So you're now looking at the fascia, and then you're going to use the spike. I guess you could use Selinger at that point and go into the uterine cavity. So your top of your cook cannula is going to be down inside the incision, and you probably have to put a little retractor in there or something. But that's going to allow you to have enough length 
both to your cannula and to your scope to be able to operate. So unfortunately, in some really heavy patients, a cut down, if you would, under some additional anesthesia might be indicated just to get the length for the cannula and the length for the scope that you need. In those situations, I like to suture the cannula either to the fascia, to the skin, just so you don't lose where you are with that cannula being just barely inside the uterine wall. We talked briefly for the anterior placenta about sometimes you can gain a window in the side. Remember, you're going to enter the recipient sac, and so you can turn that patient way over to the side and find an entry site. We always look very carefully with color flow Doppler to be sure there's no venous sinus there or uterine wall vessel, which will get you into bleeding. We do like to use, sometimes we'll use counter pressure when we do these. I'm not sure we've ever studied that, but we think it increases the intrauterine pressure and might, particularly in the earlier gestations, you know, 16, 18 weeks, the increased uterine pressure that you create by pushing on the other side will increase the intrauterine pressure and perhaps keep that membrane against the wall so you don't get membrane separation. This is upon entry with the needle, the spike, or cylinder, correct? I would probably do it both times, both yeah. when you put the needle in and then when you go to put the cannula in, I would do counter pressure, we call it, on the opposite side, just push in real hard and kind of keep that there. But I mean, one of the typical keys here is map out that entry site, be sure it's where you want. You use slow flow Doppler, color Doppler to be sure there's no big vessel there that you're going to hit and be sorry about when it starts bleeding. So now we've got our cannula in and we're getting our scope down our cannula, which is our kind of first visualization of the intrauterine cavity. But we note that there's a lot of blood from the entry site, which we can see with the scope. And you can also see it on ultrasound just kind of flowing. Yeah, sometimes you'll see when you put the needle in, you'll see a lot more flow because you hit some vessel in your wall you didn't suspect. And then you pull the needle out and you see a lot more bleeding because you just have the J-wire in. But then it stops when you put the cannula in because you expand that hole a little bit bigger. But other times you put that cannula in and you still see blood just streaming like crazy out of the anterior wall. You hit a venous sinus or you hit the edge of the placenta you didn't want to hit and now you've got blood streaming down. This is probably the worst scenario as far as trying to get the laser done because when you have bloody fluid, it doesn't take long for everything to get very opaque in there and you just can't see what you're doing. So a couple of tips. First, move along. You may normally take a lot of time to map and take your time. In this case, you might consider just putting the operating scope in right away and mapping with that and firing away because things are going to get pretty turbid pretty quickly. Another trick is to have a rapid infuser available. That's a device that's typically used in trauma surgery and even that rapidly will blow fluid in. And so we'll hook up the rapid infuser with lactated ringers or normal saline, and you can change the rates on this and the flow will come out pretty quickly to clear what's going on in front of your scope. You can also do an exchange. We will sometimes hook up tubing to the cannula and be able to do a rapid infusion of say 500 cc's, take 500 out. If the bleeding has stopped, you can try to clear out the fluid a bit by doing a couple exchanges. We do know that if you do a lot of exchanges, is you increase the rate of premature rupture membranes, probably from changing the position or the size of the uterus and alternating the size with infusions in and out. So realize that you're going to put the patient at high risk for prom if you do an exchange, but sometimes you have to do an exchange to see what you're doing. And so get the rapid infuser fired up. It takes a while to get it primed and all if you start seeing bleeding at the site. I have heard of centers that have the humidified CO2 insufflator set up for doing spina bifida fetoscopic surgery of actually using that to make a bubble, a small bubble at the top of the uterus and in the case of bleeding and then putting the scope, this is with an anterior placenta, won't work for posterior placenta, and working inside the bubble. So that's another trick that could you use sometime if you happen to have humidified CO2 insulator around. You could 
hook that up to your cannula, put a bubble in there. You can roll the patient left and right, and then you can operate inside the bubble and the laser will fire inside the bubble and see the vessels. So that's another trick to kind of get the bloody fluid out of the way. And then finally, when you go to remove it, you know you've been bleeding, so you're going to get some significant bleeding when you pull that cannula out. In the past, we used to just put a lot of pressure on there for three or four minutes, and sometimes we'd have to go through a couple cycles before we stop seeing that bleeding continuing on ultrasound. But a new trick we learned is to put a pediatric Foley through your cannula, blow up the Foley with a little bit of saline, and then pull the cannula back, and then you could pull the Foley back up against the uterine wall and hold pressure in. Remind me, Erin, how we do that. We have to cut the valve out with a... The cannula on top has a valve that kind of prevents the amniotic fluid from backflowing when you insert the scope. And so you just kind of have to cut the valve. We usually just use the same knife we used to do the skin incision, just an 11 blade and kind of cut around the valve. And then an eight French pediatric Foley fits pretty easily down. They're pretty floppy, but you can get it down a 12 French cook. And then I, I don't know that we've actually tried, but in theory, we think a six French, even floppier, but would fit down the 10 French. Yeah. So push it all the way through. You can see it on ultrasound and blow the balloon up once it's outside the cannula, pull the cannula back, pull the whole device back. So your cannula will end up being subcutaneous tissue, but your Foley will still be in the amniotic cavity. And then pull everything back up against the uterine wall and hold pressure for a while. Then deflate the balloon and pull everything out. So another trick, sometimes think about if you see a lot of bleeding, sometimes just putting a lot of pressure on the spot. Once you take everything out will also help. But those are some tricks there for bleeding on the uterine wall. Your ultrasound tech tells you that the donor sac now has more fluid. What's going on? Yeah, so you get humbled by these procedures. We do everything we can to stay on the opposite side of the donor and just into the recipient sac. But every now and then you catch the edge of that donor sac and you do an inadvertent septostomy. And that's going to cause the higher pressure fluid to move into that donor sac. And all of a sudden, now you've got the membrane of the sac filling up with fluid. Your ultrasound tech will say, gee, the donor was stuck, but now it's starting to move around a bit because there's fluid in the sac. Again, the issue here is move along because that donor sac is going to fill up over time and that adherence to the donor is going to go away. And so it's going to be more difficult to see the anastomotic vessels, particularly if they're in the donor sac. So you want to move along and get things done. Sometimes you have to do a purposeful septostomy where you need to get into the donor sac to see the correct vessels. And that can be quite difficult. We found that probably if you try to laser a hole in there, it won't work. The membrane will just shrivel up. So you have to kind of poke a hole into the sac with the fiber. You don't have to fire the laser. Just take it a sharp point and just poke a hole in the sac pretty aggressively and then kind of rip a hole, just kind of move the scope up or down to make a bigger hole. And once you have that rent, you can put the scope through and look into the donor sac and see on the other side. So sometimes you have to do that. Of course, the concern is that if you do that, you compromise that intertwined membrane. And now there's the possibility of tangled cords later if the hole gets bigger. Or there have been some rare reports of amniotic band syndrome on extremities. And a baby puts an arm or leg through that hole. So we try to keep the membrane intact as much as possible. We've had one or two cases where someone did an amnio reduction and they made a hole in the donor sac. The intertwined membrane didn't realize it. Those can be quite difficult because now you have equal fluid on both sides and you got to go find the hole. And what we would probably suggest you end up doing is find the hole, put the fiber through it and extend it so you can get your scope through. And then you're going to be lasered on both sides of the room. And that's not easy to do, believe me, because you lose track of where you are. But in order to find that anastomotic region, as you know, sometimes it's on the donor side, sometimes on the recipient side, you're probably going to have to extend that septostomy a little bit, that needle septostomy done during the amniotic reduction. 
auction to make a big enough rent to get the scope through and get to the other side. So a couple of different situations where a septostomy occurs by accident and on rare occasions we purposely do it. We try to keep that to a minimum because we worry about complications of amniotic band syndrome and tangle cords. One other trick, in the past when we've had this happen, whether it was prior to the procedure or intraoperatively, we had to flip back to the other sac. And so what we ended up doing is on ultrasound, we watched to make sure the tip of the cannula stayed inside the uterine cavity. And then while you were adjusting the cannula, I actually blew sterile saline in to blow the membrane onto the other side so that we could flip back and forth. Yes. Yeah, so it, it can be too. challenging, let me tell you, because you're doing this with ultrasound guidance to some extent, and because you have such a limited field of view through the scope, so you're looking at a membrane, you can't find the hole, you're going up and down, up and down, and the tech will say, well, I saw the bubbles go through that hole up higher, so go up, go up higher, and you'll find, and sure enough, the rent comes into view after the little micro bubbles show us where they're going through. Are we going to break here and then break this into a two-potter at this point? Yes, it's going to be a two-potter. So All that right. wraps up our part one. So next week, we'll be talking about what to do in the OR for some instances of bradycardia, misfiring of the laser, kind of what recovery could look like, maybe some complications you could have during recovery. So we'll get into some of that next week. But in the meantime, this is Aaron Moe signing off. And this is Ken Moe's. More to follow. See ya. See ya.